0: Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Now, this is where we left off last week in our study of the uh, book of Genesis. But at the same time, I would like for you all also, Well, keep your finger there and then turn over to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. It has been my desire, and, and I hope and pray that the Lord has brought me to this point where I could see us tying together what we've been studying in the book of Genesis with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, we left off in verse 7 last time, not to fully uh, expositing this particular verse, so we'll try to do some of that today. Genesis 2 verse 7 says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And then in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34, Jesus with the twelve disciples, it tells us that he took unto them the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem. And all things that were that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted upon. And they shall scourge him, and put him to death. And the third day he shall rise again. And they understood none of these things, and this saying was hid from them. Neither knew they the things which were spoken. Shall we pray? Father, it is our great desire this morning, on this Resurrection Sunday, to give you all the praise, honor, and glory for what your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, did in dying for our sins on the cross, in shedding His blood for the forgiveness of our sins, and then for rising from the dead, that we who believe in His resurrection will have the blessings of eternal life. We are so grateful for this. And now, Lord, we pray that we will see the full picture from beginning to where we are now and even to the day of Jesus' return. May we see, Lord God, the grand picture as you have planned it, as you have made it for us to understand on this side of the cross. We thank you for this now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Now, one of the great secrets of successful Christian living is the ability to make intelligent and correct decisions. Now, let me add to that, of course, that we do need the leading and guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit. But nonetheless, as we do submit ourselves to the leading of the Holy Spirit... Uh, To see that successful Christian life in each person, it comes as well from that ability to to, to make intelligent and to make correct decisions. Now, even if you're not a sports fan today, I think you'll appreciate this story about a college football team whose starting quarterback had just been injured. Their second string quarterback was sick. And hadn't even dressed for the game. So all the coach had left was a third-string freshman who had been a quarterback in high school. But who was just being used on the college team as a punter. Well, to make matters worse, they were backed up on their own three-yard line. It was a desperate situation, and the coach's only thought was somehow to get a little farther from their goal line... To give them room to punt out of danger. So sending in the third string quarterback, the coach said to him, Son, I want you to hand off to the big fullback Kowalski for the next two plays. Let him run right into the middle of the line and get us a few yards breathing room. And then I want you to punt. So the young quarterback did it as he was instructed. On the first play, he handed off to Kowalski. But almost miraculously, Kowalski found a hole off tackle and he ran for 50 yards. The young quarterback called the same play again. Second play. He called the same play again and once more, miracle of miracles, the hole opened and Kowalski gained another 45 yards. The fans went crazy. They went wild. And in two plays, they had gone 95 yards. And the ball was on their opponent's two-yard line. It was first and goal to go. Confidently, the team lined up once again. The young quarterback received the snap. And he stepped back. And to everyone's amazement, he punted the ball right into the end zone. And as stunned as his teammates came off the field, the coach angrily grabbed the young quarterback and he demanded, What in the world were you thinking about when you called the last play? The quarterback answered, I was thinking, what a dumb coach we have. (laughs) Now, now the story may sound ridiculous. (laughs) But the truth of the matter is that many college and professional coaches today do not expect their quarterbacks to make decisions. They send in all the plays from the bench. We would at least hope they would give them a little bit of leeway to make a wise decision. But now obviously we're not here this morning to talk about football. But there is an important point that we need to see here about our relationship with God. The Lord... Has paid us the ultimate compliment. You see, he allows us to make decisions. He allows us to call the plays. Think about it. He allows us to make our own decisions, he allows us to call our own plays. We have a term for that. We call that, uh, theologically, we call it uh, free moral agency, or as most people know it, free will. You see, when He created us in His own image, this was primary among the characteristics with which He endowed us. The ability to understand, the ability to reason, and the ability to choose. And you know what's beautiful about that particular thing is that God didn't create us to make us love Him. Created us so that we, out of our own desire, our own choice, our own reason, our own understanding, to love Him freely. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? But in the midst of all of that, we realize that we can also make wrong choices. You see, as we've journeyed through the initial pages of the book of Genesis, we've been amazed. We've been amazed at the creative power of God to speak the heavens and the earth and all that is in them into existence and and to form the universe and the earth, the great sea creatures and the land animals within the framework of six 24-hour days. And on that sixth day, we marvel that God chose to make man the pinnacle of all of His creation, the summit, the... The height, the peak, the apex of all that He created. And we know this, for He stamped His image on man. He stamped His own image on man. Not on any other creature. Not on any other thing that He created. Just on man. We read back in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. The triune Godhead, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the one true God in three persons, said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God created He Him. Male and female created He them. But what did God use to make man? Of what are we made? Well, when we come back to our text today in verse 7, we are told that. It says, And the Lord God formed man. The word man there is in the Hebrew where we get our word for Adam, the name, Adam. The Lord God formed Adam of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. Simply put, to answer that question of what are we made, simply put, we're made of dust and glory. We're made of dust and glory. There's probably no profounder verse of scripture in describing who we are and what we are. A combination of what is low and what is high. It is our unique role to combine both dust and glory. When God created man, He made him out of the most basic elements the dust of the ground. You know, there's nothing spectacular in what man is made of. Only in the way those basic things are organized. That's what's spectacular. But if it's just uh, the elements themselves, no big deal when you think about it. John Phillips in his commentary on Genesis writes this. He says, suppose we, uh, we were going to make a human body. We would need 58 pounds of oxygen and 50 quarts of water, 2 ounces of salt, 3 pounds of calcium, 24 pounds of carbon, and some chlorine, phosphorus, fat, iron, sulfur, and glycerin. We bring the items home. So much dust and some water. There it is. Our do-it-yourself kit for making a human body. The only problem is with the instructions. The human body is so complex an entity that no scientist can comprehend more than a fraction of its composition and functions. Many times I've told you, you know, if we were to just break down the, you know, the body into its basic essential elements before us, we'd probably be worth about $1.76. So when the Bible speaks of dust, It means something of little worth. Associated, by the way, with lowliness and with humility. This is how the patriarchs and the prophets, the people who understood what God had done in making us out of the the dust of the ground. This is how they understood being dust. Abraham, when... Facing God and and pleading with Him about His nephew Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. And wanting to know if God would save those cities for a certain number of righteous in them. Abraham approaches the Lord and says this. He says, Behold now, Genesis 18 verse 27. Behold now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes." He knew exactly what he was in the presence of God. I wish more people would know that when going to God. I think we would plead in a proper way if we pray to God in the right way when we realize who we are in his presence dust and ashes. Rather than get before God and demand that we have our rightful things. It was Hannah before God in the tabernacle who would pray. 1 Samuel 2 verse 8, He raises up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes, to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and He has set the world upon them. He raises up the poor out of the dust. So in the Scriptures, dust is an evil, and it isn't nothing, because it's something. But I guess you can say, if dust is anything, it is next to nothing. Nothing. And still, God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. And this is man's glory. We, made out of the dust of the ground, still receive the breath of God. This is how we touch God and God touches us. But we're not like the animals. You see, the Rulach of God gave man life. And the great distinction between man and all other creatures is that man is not only alive, but he knows he's alive. How many of you know you're alive today? How many of you are getting ready to come to that understanding as you're waking up this morning? All right. You know you're alive. Animals don't think in those terms. Animals don't think philosophically, theologically, spiritually, or otherwise. They just live. We think about who we are, what we are, where we are, why we are, when we are, how we are. We're so different. So. Even more importantly, man knows from whom that life has come and of his duties to the God who breathed his own breath into him. And may I say to you that breathing man is without excuse. Here's another question for you this morning. How many of you are breathing today? (laughs) Half of us are breathing. That's pretty good. That's a lot better than the three people who always raise their hands when I ask for questions. How many of you are breathing today? Please let me see. Oh, good. All right. At least I'm getting you to do a little exercise today. (laughs) Let's do the wave. All right. And you're breathing. Guess what? You're without excuse. You know who made you. Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has showed it unto them, for the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood, notice, by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now you might be asking the question, so what does all of this have to do with Resurrection Sunday? What does all this have to do with Jesus rising from the dead? Well, I tell you what, let's get back to the disciples here, the twelve, in Luke 18. Begin to start weaving our way to combining these thoughts. Consider what Jesus told them. And, and by the way, He told them this not just once. There are four other recorded times that He tells them these things. Luke 18, verses 31-34, to Then He took unto Him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem. And all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. What does that tell you? It tells us that Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. Jesus knew exactly what He was going to do. Jesus knew exactly what needed to be done for the sins of man. And then He said to them, For He shall be delivered unto the Gentiles and shall be mocked and spitefully entreated and spitted on And they shall scourge Him and put Him to death. And the third day, He shall rise again. But I want you to notice verse 34. After Jesus says these things, what the disciples are thinking. And they understood none of these things. Whoa. They understood none of these things. And this saying was hid from them. Neither knew they the things which were spoken. I suppose if 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 there was a way to express how they were looking at Jesus, when Jesus mentioned this, it would probably be, you know, the deer in the headlight thing. It would probably be As, as best a picture as we can draw of that very moment when Jesus says these things and they understood none of them. What did they not understand about Jesus being delivered to the Gentiles? About being mocked and insulted and spit upon and beaten and put to death only to rise again on the third day? I mean, it seems so clear to us, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> we, you know, we might say that uh, they just didn't get it. We might say that it didn't sink into them quite yet. At the moment they were still disciples instead of apostles. That was their grades, by the way, so far. Or maybe they just weren't ready to learn. But I want you to consider something that the apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 6 through 8. And it's really in verse 8 that we need to look at this. But verse 6 says, howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect or complete, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Now there's this very, very important word there that he mentions, a mystery. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, even before creation. This was already uh, in God's heart and mind. And I want you to notice that in verse 8 it says, Which none of the princes or rulers of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Had they knew, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Had they known the mystery? Now we could take that mystery back a long, long way. We could go back and say, do you know what the mystery is? The mystery is that the very Lord that you crucified is the Lord who created the heavens and the earth. The very same one who breathed into us, who formed us out of the dust of the ground and breathed into us the breath of life. And He has come here because we have fallen into sin because of the first Adam we fell into sin now some would argue the very fact that here would be a good reason for people to see that God was not going to be stopped in what his plan was Jesus had to die for us or else we wouldn't have eternal life We wouldn't have the opportunity to receive life. If Jesus doesn't die, there is no life, then our faith would be in vain today. All within the plan of God. Pontius Pilate, Caiaphas, the high priest, the members of the Sanhedrin, even the Roman soldiers, if they had understood who Jesus was, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. <clears throat> but here's a question for you today. Do you understand this on this side of the cross? Do you understand now on this side of the cross who Jesus is? What Jesus did? Why Jesus came? Why we are celebrating today the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Why are we why are we rejoicing today? Do we understand all of this on this side of the cross? You see in 1 Corinthians 1, the previous chapter of the text I just read, in verse 18 it says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Unto us which are saved. Saved because we believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And that is the power of God. Just as Paul said in in, in Romans chapter 1. When he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. It is the power of God. Had we known the power of Jesus, who would have crucified him? But you see, that's the mystery. That's the mystery. Without Him dying, we have no hope. So here are the facts that we need to know and to understand. First of all, we were created by God. We were created by God. We're not the product of some galactic accident. We were created by God. Secondly, We need to know and understand that we were created in God's image. Unlike angels and animals, we can have a very special relationship with God. Because He created us in His image, therefore we have everything we need so that we can have that blessed fellowship and relationship with God. Thirdly though, we need to know and understand that we were created to have dominion over the earth. We've read this as much in chapters 1 and 2. But what happened to change all of that? Well, chapter 3 of Genesis tells us that when Adam believed Satan's lie and and ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that he lost that kingship, that position, that place of of overseeing and, and having that dominion over all the earth. And now sin and death is what reigns over the earth. And so to greater understand this, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 5 for just a moment and and listen to the words of the Apostle Paul here as he begins to clarify for us these particular issues after the fall of man in Genesis 3. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man... Sin entered into the world and death by sin, folks, that tells us a number of things. We've already studied this before in making sure, making it very clear that when God created the world in six days, there was no gap between verse 1 and verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1 of millions and millions of years where dinosaurs existed and death reigned and ruled and, and, and whatnot. And then, and then God went on to... No, no, no. There, there's no gap there. Listen. At the very end of the six days, when God on the seventh day said, Hey, well, at the end of the sixth day, He looked and He said, It is all very good. There's no room for death and destruction. That's why it says here, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. There wasn't any death before this. This one man is Adam. This one man is the first Adam. And so death passed upon all men. For that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. And look at Moses, of course, being the one who would be the receiver of the law from God. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned. After the likeness or the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Now that's a very interesting statement, because you see, Adam is the one being mentioned here, the similitude of Adam's transgression, the likeness of Adam, who is the figure of him that was to come. Who was coming? Who needed to come? Jesus. How would he come? After the likeness of the first Adam. Not as the offense, notice, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one may many be dead, that being the first Adam, much more the grace of God, and the gift by grace, which is by one man Jesus Christ. At this point we're going to call him the last Adam. And it says, which is by one man Jesus Christ, is abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, the first Adam, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification that again by the by the last atom for if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ, the last Adam. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous." Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ, our Lord, the last Adam. Why am I calling him that? Because the picture that we see from beginning to end, from tying together the very fact that we were created in the image of God, that God made us out of the dust of the ground, that God breathed into us the breath of life. We went from life to death. But without the second Adam, we could not go back to life. Because of the second Adam, we can go from life to death, to life again. And this is what this day is all about. This is what this day is all about. It is about the last Adam. Jesus Christ, the Creator of heaven and earth. We've studied that already extensively in the last 12 weeks of our study of the book of Genesis. Genesis. Jesus Christ is the Creator of heaven and earth. Colossians chapter 1. Read it. Not now, but read it later. Jesus Christ, the Creator of the heaven and earth, the One who formed the first Adam from the dust of the ground, the One who breathed life into the first Adam, the One who made the first Adam a living soul far above and beyond the rest of creation, the One who would leave His throne with the Father to come to this earth that He had created to take upon Himself The covering of the dust of the ground. Think about it. He took upon himself flesh. What's the flesh? Dust. Insignificance. Next to nothingness. But Jesus put it on the flesh. And then he took in the breathable atmosphere that he so wisely created for life. And all of this he did because of what the first Adam did in disobedience. That's what Jesus came to do. That's what Jesus came to do. You see in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. What does that tell you? He took putting on the dust of the ground seriously. A man of no reputation here. Took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. Remember, Adam was just the prefiguring of the one who was to come. Jesus could be seen, he could be heard, he could be touched, he could be embraced. He could be spoken to. He could touch. He could heal. He could raise the dead. He could laugh. He could weep. He would eat. And eventually he would die. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. What greater humbling can there be than the God who created the heavens and the earth would say, I'm going to go and just put on the dust of the ground. You know, being rich doesn't make your dust any better than the one who's poor. And by the way, there are no different colors here because we're all made of the same materials. We're really all of the same color too. One color doesn't make us better than another. When Jesus put on that dust, became like us. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. As the dust that was next to nothing, the last Adam came in the same humility, yet with every bit of the glory by which he breathed life into the first Adams, also that he might die as the substitute in the place of all in the likeness of Adam. And this particular thought of the first Adam and the and the last Adam is is made clear by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians fifteen when he begins in verse forty five and so it is written the first Adam or the first man Adam was made a living soul, the last Adam was made a quickening spirit or a or a life giving spirit actually. Howbeit that it was not first which is spiritual but that which is natural and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such as they are, as they also, uh, such are they also that are earthy, and as is, is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Now what is Paul saying here? Well first let me say that we, ourselves, all who are made of the dust of the ground, all who are made of the same essential elements as the first Adam, we will pattern our lives either after Adam or after Christ. We will either pattern our lives after Adam or after Jesus. Either after the world or after heaven. And what Paul is saying is that they who live for the earth and its worldliness are those who are living only after the first Adam. Therefore, the only body they will have will be a body of death. That is a body that will be separated from God. However, the persons who pattern their lives after the heavenly Christ will be given a body just like the body of Jesus Christ. A perfect heavenly body. All persons who turn from the image of the earthly to the heavenly, which is Jesus Christ, will bear the image of the heavenly. The corrupt will become incorruptible. The mortal will become immortal. Again, the promises given by Paul through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 15. So after the resurrection of Jesus, the eyes of the apostles, who had at one time not understood anything that Jesus said, the eyes of the apostles were now opened. All the pieces of the puzzle, the puzzle started to fit together. And the words that Jesus had previously told them began to make sense. You see, for the first time, they began to understand the teaching that had just gone over their heads before. You see, where were the apostles when Jesus was on the cross? We know of only one, John, who was there. Where had all the others gone? But after the resurrection, then things began to make sense. You see, it was on the other side of the cross. We're on that side now. So, what do we understand? Even after Jesus had died on the cross, there were some very downcast disciples that had been there on that day, what some would have called the fateful day, the day of Jesus' death. But to the downcast disciples on the road to Emmaus following the death and the burial of Jesus, this is what the Lord did. If you'll turn to Luke chapter 24, we're going to close with this now, but... This binds it all together. What we began earlier today—Luke twenty-four, verse twenty-seven. After Jesus had been walking alongside of these disciples who didn't know who he was at the at that point in time, it says, "In beginning at Moses and all the prophets." Well, what's in Moses? The Book of Genesis from the beginning. Beginning in Moses and all the prophets, He expounded unto them all the Scriptures, in all the Scriptures, the things concerning Himself. He began to take them from the very beginning of the the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. By the way, I was there. And they drew nigh unto the village. Whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread, and blessed it, and brake, and gave to them. They began to share a meal. But as he took the bread, as he broke the bread, as he blessed it, it tells us in the next verse, their eyes were open. And they knew him. And he vanquished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while He talked with us by the way and while He opened us to to us the Scriptures? And they rose up that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way and how He was known of them in breaking of bread. They testified. We were with Him. He was with us. And we didn't know it until we saw him break the bread. What do you think else they saw if they didn't see the nail-scarred hands? Their eyes were open. And Jesus said, now you know. Now you understand. Goodbye. And he was gone. as we come to this table of communion today, I want to ask you a very important question. Actually, I want to ask you a series of questions. Will you recognize Jesus on this special and significant day? Will you recognize Him? Will you receive Him if you haven't already? You see, Jesus... Never stops inviting us to come to him. Come to me, he says. I'm risen from the dead. I'm alive today. Come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Quit going through life in this restless state of wonder and confusion. If you recognize me, if you see the scars in my wrists, it's me. So if if you haven't already received Him, will you receive Him today? Will you choose Jesus Christ today? Because you see, He gave you that wonderful Wonderful privilege. We're not here to force you to love Jesus. We want you to know that from your heart you can choose to love Him for the things that He did for you. And you can say right where you are, if you've never said this before, Lord Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner. And by the way, as we take this bread and this cup today, This is for sinners. But You can say, Lord, I confess I'm a sinner. I confess, Lord, that I've sinned against you and you only. And Lord, I pray that you will cleanse me of that sin. And today on this very special day, I acknowledge that you rose from the dead. Certainly that you first died for me and that you uh, suffered for me and that you shed your blood for my forgiveness. But I acknowledge that you rose from the dead. Your word says that if I do that, if I confess Jesus with my mouth and believe in my heart that he's risen from the dead, then I'll be saved and that's what I want today. Now I understand. Now I know. This side of the cross. What Jesus did for me. And from this day forward until the day of Jesus' return, I want to live my life for Jesus Christ. I want to live my life as a reflection of the love of Christ. You do that today, right now. Then I encourage each and every one of you, take this cup. Take this bread. And let's today rejoice in the work of Christ, our Savior.